and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. So hi Sarah Louise and thank you so much for agreeing to take part in the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. And as the name suggests, we're just going to be talking about your journey, um, you know, how things have been affected, your mental health, things like that. But I'm also very, very excited because um, you have some really interesting, um, special interests that you're doing at the moment. And I'd love to talk about those. So um, you've kindly said that I can call you Sarah. You can. So I don't trip <laughs> over my, my words. So thank you very much for that. So <laughs> what I'd like to do just to start, if it's okay, is uh, just ask you to introduce yourself do you know give us your name roughly where you live and briefly what is what it is you do as far as your work and interest is concerned in neurodivergence over to you thank you so much and thank you for choosing me as one of your guests it's really really a privilege um so i'm sarah and i'm i'm in west london um at the base of all of my projects i'm a therapist uh, with a business background and I have a social impact company called Wired Differently, which has nine different projects in neurodiversity. Fantastic. And I will ask you a bit about that because I've known you through the uh, mainly LinkedIn and, and, and various other ways. You coached me and it was absolutely fantastic. And, oh, thank uh, you. We've, <laughs> and we've also been talking about sweatshirts and I'm still waiting for mine. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> That's because I have a great logo done by Georgia Dematos and uh, everyone wants it on a sweatshirt. <laughs> I know, and it's just, I, and I love the logo, I love everything about it, and we'll come on to that. So uh, the first question I will ask you, Sarah, is what is your neurodivergent, how long did you discover you are, dot, 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 and do you have any co-occurring differences? Okay, so I was formally diagnosed uh, with autism uh, spectrum disorder at the age of 38, so that was five years ago. Um, and I realized during the pandemic that I have ADHD because I had a couple of episodes of rejection sensitive dysphoria and I work with a neurodiversity coach. So my coach is Susan Issa and we identified that that was uh, pretty much what was going on and I'm just about to be formally assessed. So I'm self-diagnosed ADHD, formally diagnosed autistic. Fantastic. And, and that's really interesting, actually, what you say about um, formally with the um, autism. Uh, so you're saying formally autistic and, and self-diagnosed with the ADHD. Yeah. And, and so am I. I mean, just to add that in, because the thing is, is if you're anything like me, and I'm absolutely sure you are, when, when you went through this journey, yours was 38, did you say? Yep, I was. Yep. Uh, yeah. And I was 56. And of course, I went into a huge um, 
um, hyper-focused and did loads and hundreds of hours of research. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if somebody was to go uh, diagnose me ADHD, I am, I would say 85 to 90% that they would say I was combined. I see yeah, it absolutely. Myself. I see it in yeah. myself. To be honest with you, it's not something I'd thought about before because I didn't know about the RSD side. But once I'd realized that that was what I was struggling with, um, I think three or four times last year, um, I then looked into all. And of course, I have so many ADHD clients and I have such an affinity with them. Um, and then I, you know, you, the last person you recognize is yourself, right? So yeah. <laughs> that's how it went with me too. Yes, it, it is. And for therapists, you know, our journey and the, the decades that we've had, we are experts in, in a lot of things. Of course, every neurodivergent person is different, but the, we are, I mean, we call them these words, which I do get a little bit frustrated with. You know, all of the words I get and terms I get frustrated with. The only thing that makes sense is that we're different. Mm -hmm. So different to the, to the 84%. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about your, you know, your assessment and diagnosis journey? Was it straightforward or, um, or difficult? And, and when did you say, and you said you were diagnosed when you were 38? Yeah, so it was straightforward. I went private. Uh, I think I'd realized uh, about 12 months prior. I mean, I'd done the assessments and screenings and things and I thought, right, this is pretty much a sure thing. But I think that we are quite prone to imposter syndrome on the spectrum because we tend to have this real focus and, and value about truth and ethics and honesty. And I think, you know, if anyone's going to struggle with imposter syndrome, I think it's ND people. And it was mainly because of that that I thought I need this confirmed, especially working as a therapist and doing, you know, public talks like this and, and public speaking. So I just felt personally that it would be best to have the bit of paper and it was really validating and the information that came back was just yeah it just confirmed so many things um and i'm glad i did it but i absolutely um have a lot of respect for people who are self-diagnosed i'm not particularly insecure about the fact that for the moment i'm self-diagnosed on the adhd side i was comfortable with it but for, for various reasons i just wanted to be sure partly um sally because i've worked linked to the benefit system and you know if people fall on hard times they don't have a diagnosis they can't really claim anything my biggest fear would be you know i'd literally be homeless because at some point i couldn't work in my life and i couldn't pay the rent and you know in in my anxiety uh moments of anxiety that's the sort of thing i would think of so i, I just wanted to feel protected i guess Sorry, that was quite a long answer. <laughs> no, it's a fantastic answer, Sarah, and I, and I absolutely get that. And, you know, because I'm a psychotherapist too, as soon as I, I mean, that build up, that build up to the day, knowing that this person who was assessing me was going to tell me at the end of the session mm. whether I was autistic or not. And thank God that they did say that I was autistic. Yeah. And, um, but what a relief. And as soon as I got the, as soon as I got that, I came out straight away. I changed I, I, uh, my directory listings, my website. I told everybody, and um, partly because of what you're talking about, because I want to advocate. You know, I'm not yes. a, a huge, great big activist necessarily, mm -hmm. but I want to try and help people as much as possible because for my own mental health, apart from anything else, helping others is a really, really good thing to do. And, um, partly because of status to a certain, a certain extent. If I'm going to be on a platform, I do mm. want to be able to say, yes, I am autistic. But then, mm. you know, many of my clients come to me and self-diagnosis is 100% valid. So Absolutely. 
yeah I totally mm. get that. I get that with any of it because you know I, the, the one I suppose is um, dyslexia I mean that tends to tends to come up at school quite easily and mm. and it's very accepted and to some degree even ADHD is but autism is so complicated and and we need a, we need people like us to help don't we to Absolutely. Yeah. One thing I really like doing is highlighting the everyday ways in which being autistic ADHD affect me because it just doesn't seem to be the bits that you find in books. And that's why I'm writing an ebook, just because I want to write about the bits that you can't read about anywhere else. Um, there are some great blog posts, there's some great, you know, um, bloggers and some great YouTubers. But I don't think I've ever found the book that I want to sit down and go, ah, okay. And so, yes. yeah, I thought I'd have a crack. I've totally got you with that. Um, uh, pretending to be normal. Um, and there was another one. Absolutely fantastic. And actually, my, you know, I'm, I'm not flashing my book today, but, but I'm, I, you know, you don't even know. I don't talk about it because it's hmm. about my life to the age of 56. But if you are autistic ADHD, you'll know I am from reading it. And it's that, you know, it's <laughs> trying to help people. So um, just tell me a little bit um, before we go on to the really meaty bit, which I'm very excited about, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, because I think we need to talk about it. And I'm just dangling this in front of our listeners, but it's, you know, you wake, it's going to be very, very good. How was it for you? Just give me a bit of a feel how, how it was for you, Sarah, when you were growing up, you know, primary, middle, secondary school, a bit of sort of um, college and university. Did you have any uh, particular, um, you know, struggles and challenges? And just give us a flavour of what that was like. Yeah, I loved primary school. It was small. It was in a little village. Uh, I, I just remember everyone was equal. It was not very materialistic. You weren't aware of differences. You weren't aware that, you know, one person's parent did this and, and your dad or mum did that. It was There was no comparison it just felt equal. We were all there in our, in our old clothes and, you know, I don't know, it just felt like everyone was the same and that really appealed to me. Um, I did get interested in, in boys. I've been interested in boys and girls since I was really, really little. I've been uh, identified as bisexual since the age of three. So there was no doubt there, but um, I did start getting feelings for boys. And I remember once a, a little boy kissed me in the playground and I went home and thought that I had to I had to hurt myself or kill myself because um, we weren't married. And I don't know where I got Aww. that from because I don't come from that type of background where I have, yeah. you know, particularly strict parents. So I don't know, I probably got that from TV or something that, you know, oh, but <laughs> or a former life where I was a nun or something. But um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely internalized something very weird there. So I definitely had a very, very strong and slightly warpy sense of right and wrong um but I yeah I loved it I loved I loved learning and then there was a brutal change when I went to secondary school and then I think everything really hit the fan there because um it was huge uh it was very materialistic it was all about who had you know the tanning bed at home and I mean we were 13 I think everyone thought that they were in Beverly Hills 90210 and um it was all about the, the fake tan it was about the you know the lads it was about the the fashion and the wear what you dreaded wear what you like days and I was the least cool of them all and I also had huge boobs which you know was was good and crap at the same time yeah. <laughs> did you, you know, have a phone at that point I know it sounds a really bizarre question but um no. we didn't have phones and I'm thinking you know my kids are 21 and 19 and they didn't have phones until they were sort of 14 and that's 
from the year 2000 um, yeah. because I mean obviously that's that's really difficult as well so did you have phones no um I remember at that time my dad my dad's always been in sort of car and vehicle sales and I remember him as the typical car salesman and his phone was the size of a brick but yeah. it certainly yeah. wasn't the age where the kid would yes. have the, the mobile yeah. no way or not one that you could get into a backpack to go to school with <laughs> so you managed to get through um secondary school which is it's horrific it's oh. so awful i'm so glad they're bringing back grain chill they better could do better do a good job of it because um that was absolutely my era grain and, chill was um, great it was actually quite accurate <laughs> it was very good and and then uh, my son was watching waterloo road and that was really good and my school was a mixture of that it was very rough so um so then you um skip on to um college and university if you went to university how was that part for you well, firstly, I just wanted to say that secondary school, I actually developed OCD, um, which oh. really took up a lot of my life. Uh, I think I just couldn't cope with all the change and I didn't, I didn't get puberty. So university, I actually went to a little bit late. I left school at 16. I then went back to night school to do my A-levels about three years later. And then I went to uni. So had a little bit of a, of a break where I did other things. Um, I went and lived in France and I went into theatre and did some quite cool stuff for someone of that age. Um, but university, I hated it because I thought, so I went to Exeter, which back then was the failed uh, Oxbridge Candidates University or the Greenwell oh, really? University. Yes, although I didn't apply to Oxbridge because I did, I, I was the one that, no, I, I knew I wasn't going to get in, that's the difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone else yeah. thought they might and didn't and ended up at Exeter, but um, no, Exeter was, was not a good place back then. It was, it was known as very, very bitchy. Uh, it was very much, you know, uh, minor royalty it girl kind of university um, and oh, everything that yeah. with that. Yeah, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I mean, yeah. I must admit by that point, I was very interested in different cultures. It, it wasn't, I mean, at the end of the day, it's in Devon. I kind of went home to university. So you don't, don't expect a multicultural experience, but yeah, it, it wasn't my thing. I did expect more independence. Uh, I got on brilliantly, you know, typical ND got on probably better with the tutors and lecturers than I did with the other kids like you do at school. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it wasn't the liberal, wonderful experience. I also had a massive, you know, I come from a family, I guess, which is quite sort of working class, but mixed with middle class. So I had a bit of an identity crisis and I was around kids that their parents worked at the foreign office. They thought I was the most working class thing they'd ever met. And yet my friends thought I was being really posh. I couldn't work out who the hell I was. Um, but I think that's down to the fact I speak quite autistically. Um, so I think my speech is, is quite autistic. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of that. Um, I chose politics because it was quite frankly, the hardest thing I got accepted for. So it sounded good, but I didn't really know anything about politics. Um, and I also got accepted to do Arabic, but you had to spend an hour, a year in the Middle East by yourself. And I was too scared. So I turned That's that fantastic. That's so autistic. I absolutely love that. <laughs> it was a bit random, but I have always had a real thing about um, Middle Eastern and Eastern Med and Asian cultures. So, but yeah, I think, I don't think I had the, uh, the, the balls to actually go at that stage. So. Can I just add on to that? Cause that's quite funny. Cause you, you thought, you went politics and Arabic and I'm thinking KAD of course and then but there's me in my terrible alcoholism state in about 2005 I decided to skip off to um, college and study um, 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 to become an electrician 
Did you? I could, I could see you doing that though, because you can turn. You're a sort of person. You could turn your hand to anything. Yes, I was absolutely terrible. <laughs> oh, were you? Yes, I was. I was awful. I couldn't do it, and I still can't change a plug. I wasn't so, expecting you to say that. <laughs> no, no, no. I was awful. I was much better as a taxi driver, which was a bit later after that. So, <laughs> so interestingly, you know, um, normally you wouldn't expect university to be all bitchy and horrible, but it was. But mm. you finished it, and you came out, and you know, just putting it all together really you know what were your biggest challenges being neurodivergent you've mentioned OCD and I wanted to ask you if you were a checker or cleaner or both you know what were your main challenges for uh, your mental health during your education side oh goodness okay so uh well I've already talked about RSD so I'm going to go in with another yeah. one here so I uh, basically at 13 I developed uh, OCD a colloquially known version uh, sorry a colloquially called version of pure O um, pure O is where it looks like it's a pure obsession because you can't see the compulsion so my obsession was in my head and my compulsion was in my head so it was pretty horrific. I was a little girl and uh, I would literally be, you know, mum and dad would be in Sainsbury's and I'd be walking around and I'd be looking at, I don't know, crunchy nut cornflakes and suddenly a voice would come into my head telling me, are you sure you're not sexually attracted to children? Are you not a paedophile? Yes. And, um, and I really like talking about that because it took yeah. two decades of my life and I was oh. in a bit of a mess over it. And I when I was in my 20s, I did think about suicide about three times um, because it was just the most horrific. I mean, I can't imagine thinking anything more horrific, but that is exactly how it works. So um, I, I often see people with OCD and I definitely recommend what to do when your brain gets stuck, which is a, a Dawn Hubner illustrated children's book, but it makes it so unthreatening. And I love talking about what is colloquially known as Puro because it is the form of OCD nobody talks about because of the P word and the, and the sex word. And yeah, it took away my sexuality. It took away my, my ability to think I deserved anything uh, in that vein because I thought, well, that I must be dangerous. I must be dirty. And, and unfortunately that's how it gets you. It traps it's you. It's terrible. You can't talk to anyone. Can I just add in on that? Because I've had clients yep. coming to me and they didn't know it was Puro and I'd read about it because I was interested yep. in OCD and seeing people with OCD, but this was coming out differently and, you know, obviously confidentiality. So I'm just going to use something similar to give an example. Yeah, sure. But um, I was getting clients that were coming to me um with the one i think i've run somebody over um, and i've got to yep. go back but but some of the bigger ones uh were um you know you can't go past a knife without wanting to get it and actually stabbing it into your mum or your uh, baby or yeah, yeah absolutely and total lo lots of um pedophilic type stuff and also um the one with you know pushing your child around a supermarket in a trolley yeah and looking at your child and th thinking you want to kill it yeah I yeah mean, it's a very good term for that because it's pure oh it's what you know it's one thing but lots of them and they change over the years but yep. they're so dramatic aren't they Sarah they're so dramatic and the problem is is you physiologically you go hot and cold so you're very seduced by the fact that your body's having a physiological reaction which means that you naturally believe it must be true more because you think if it wasn't true why would I feel these things uh, yeah constantly checking in am I turned on am I you know um, and, and it was, it was absolutely terrifying. And I can honestly say the last time I had a vague, oh my God, what if I'm a pedophile thought was during lockdown. I had a one week where I was a bit like, oh, I'm, you know, 
if my mum and dad, you know, bless them, they're older now. One of my biggest fears has always been, you know, one day I'll lose them. That, that day it will happen. The, the day something really horrific happens, those thoughts will be there. And it's very much keep checking yourself. Keep checking that you're not going to, yeah, stab your boyfriend, hurt your mum, spit yeah. on an old lady in the street. So I've spoken to people in the past and they've said, you know, oh, I told my therapist and about these awful thoughts I was having. And it, it's, it's awful because you wonder what the person will think. And I remember one person saying, well, my therapist told me that if the worst thing I could imagine doing was smashing a banana in an old lady's face, that would be my puro thought. Yeah. And I was kind of like, I like how that's made it non-threatening and brought it down to earth because people who are terrified that they may one day have a thought that they could be a pedophile, they're not the pedophiles. <laughs> Yeah, that, which is a bit like BPD, and it's a bit like uh, big phobias, which I, I do with the rewind technique with clients, because um, instead of, you know, the mother looking at the child in the, in the um, shopping trolley walking around the supermarket saying, I want to kill you, your child suddenly turns into a really beautiful little kitten, really fluffy with lovely ears, just purring at you, you know, and so we, and we can work with that, and that's amazing. Nice. And, so, I mean, that must have been so hard for you. And, and what I'd like to do, because you've mentioned it a few times, before we go on to talking about the thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> can, we just, can we just hover briefly again um, um, over rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria? Because yep. um, I know that some autistic people will experience it. Um, I've, I've got, it does get quite frustrating when neurotypical people say, well, no one likes criticism. Everybody feels like that. Mm -hmm. And then if I say, you've got to live in my world when it happens. And, and, but, but they're not going to give you time to describe what it is, what it is actually like. Mm. I mean, I feel emotional talking about it, you know, because mm. people, I'm sorry, do not understand what rejection sensitivity dysphoria is like. Mm -hmm. And I lived my life with such pain from it and it mm. sent me to the bottle yes the dopamine and the rejection sensitivity was why i drank not because i should have been sitting in aa talking about mental health and and alcohol at that point yeah i was in so much pain i needed something and actually it when you find out what it is it cuts it in half it cuts it in half it when does get the validation and the understanding. So I would really love to hear your experience of rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, when you didn't know about it and then when you found out about it. Yeah, so basically I remember speaking to my coach during the pandemic because I went, uh, I actually just went on a picnic with some friends. Uh, I was living back in Cheltenham and we went on a picnic and I went from having a picnic to being suicidal within 72 hours. Wow. Um, yeah, it was quite terrifying because I didn't really relate as somebody who had any problems. Uh, everything was fine. It took me out of the blue, but it took me to a very dark place very quickly. And I wasn't actively planning suicide. I just felt like I was moving towards it. It was a feeling. And yes. I always think when someone's suicidal, we talk about suicidal thoughts, but we don't often talk about what it feels like to feel that that is just going to be inevitable and you almost enter into this calm accepting and I've said before on interviews that I've worked with lots of people who felt suicidal and it's when that almost 
monotone seductive voice comes in where it's almost convincing that yeah. this is what I'm going to do and it's okay. And I'm always like, Oh, hold on a second. That's what I was doing in my head. Um, because was the pain is as well. Was that a bit puro as well? No, this was RSD. This was some perceived rejection. I just was feeling, and you know, I was with really great people whenever I'm back there. They're exactly the sort of people I, 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 I all the sort of people, exactly the group of people that I seek out to make sure I spend time with when I'm down there. Um, it, it's nothing like that. It's just, you know, we have a communication and, and, and uh, social uh, condition. And sometimes I just feel very out of step. I felt like everything that was being said, I was two sentences behind. I was reacting therefore my reactions were mismatched to the the points being made i just right. felt out of step i felt isolated i felt like i was behind double glazing i felt like i couldn't connect i felt like i was terrible at this and everyone says oh you're such a great communicator and i thought right out of work i'm just shit basically yeah. and uh yeah and i just yeah i i just sort of started thinking well if all i can do is work what's the point and i'm never going to be able to connect with anyone and, and it was terrifying and i had the same thing happen after a dinner party and the same thing happened after a, a wedding last year so it yeah it was really horrific i think the one in september was the worst i've ever had and you're it's very painful but what i would like people to know is it's physically painful too and the yeah. day after, um, you know, the one in Italy, particularly the day after, I literally felt like my chest was, you know, like smashed up glass in a, in a, in a bar where you'd had a fight the night before. I literally mm -hmm. felt like everything was sharp and spiky and it was like a million glass cuts all over me. It just That's really painful. Terrible. And, and, and I'm sure that lots of people will have different like fibromyalgia and all sorts of really awful, awful feelings. And I know after my RSD, it is, exhaustion uh exhaustion and it's absolute burnout non-verbal on yes the can't move please don't talk to me don't touch me don't do anything yeah no facial expressions just completely yeah and it is pain and, and it is crippling and and if somebody keeps getting it like you you were as well mm. we are talking about suicidal ideation and it's mm. and it's very very scary and it's I know that um, CBT can be can be good for ADHD, but we have to be incredibly empathetic, validating, and take that journey with the person who has rejection sensitivity dysphoria because we've got to do something about it. We can't we have. be we can't really be walking around uh, with things actually happening because we're autistic mm. and things being perceived that. Yeah, happening. And I was a little bit concerned when I read the article this morning from uh, it was on um, one of my platforms from Attitude magazine, and they were talking about RSD, and I was getting into the article, but then literally halfway down, the rest of the whole article was all the medications that can be used mm. with it. Mm -hmm. And I just thought this is something that happens to us people who have this thing we call ADHD. Mm. And there's a pill. Mm. And 99% of people with ADHD have it. Yes. Mm. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot more we can do. There's a lot more hard work we can do um, mm. with people, you know, for people, ADHD people um, who are experiencing these symptoms that we, called our, that we call RSD, but actually it's what it feels like. It is, now, and also, like and what's what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your body, what are your feelings, if you can name them. 
this is exactly anything. absolutely and also another thing with rsd that i've noticed and that i work with with my clients is when we say rejection sensitivity we imagine a person rejecting us either actual or perceived but sometimes it can be that we feel a situation or a place is rejecting us or a set of circumstances so you can't always put your finger on kind of what the enemy is and i recently had this with a client where I said to them, what you're describing, I think is RSD. And they said, but no one rejected me. I said, but if you think about it, you felt othered. The whole setup was making you feel othered. And, and the, your reaction to that was very much a rejection that you were basically you know, swallowing. And they sort of said, oh my goodness, that makes sense. But I wouldn't have thought of it as the word of being rejected. So I think you're right. And when you say we have a lot of work to do, it's a, the, you know, the classic awareness raising. But how often do you see articles about RSD? I've never spoken about it where someone hasn't said, what's that? Whether they have ADHD or not, it's just not talked about enough. And that really bothers me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, I mean, I've, I've written books about it without even knowing what I was writing about. All my life, I have been looking after the underdog and mm -hmm. basically the point of that which I discovered was that I cannot bear that that's what dysphoria means not being able to bear yes I cannot bear even more sometimes I cannot bear the suffering of others I yep. cannot bear seeing someone else rejected when it's not fair which is the autistic justice absolutely but when I would see my children when it wasn't fair and it was emotional, emotionally attached as well, if I saw my children um, rejected, my heart was being torn from my chest. Yes, yeah, and I've always related to that in you. I, I remember when I first came across you, it was on LinkedIn, and I remember reading your post and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I could have written that because <laughs> this woman has a sense of injustice and she has, she's got the balls to fight stuff, and I related yeah. to you straight away. So, yeah, I really, I really get that. And, uh, and yeah, thank you so much for telling me about that. So it is rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Mm. If our listeners think that they cannot bear rejection, they cannot be bear being criticized or the perception of it or the suffering of others because they've been rejected, then please Google it and, and search about it, read about it. There's lots mm. of articles. And there is a test you can do with Attitude Magazine if you're interested in doing that. So we're going to round it up now because I'm, I'm looking at our time together and I have the very big question at the end, which I've absolutely got to ask you about. But <laughs> I think really the biggest thing is uh, we're going to start talking about sex. We are going to talk about sex. It needs doing, right? But the thing is, is, you know, you, you mentioned earlier on, which is really exciting that you're, uh, you're writing an ebook, and you said to me before we came on air that you really want, you know, almost half of the ebook now to be talking about intimacy, relationships, sex within autism and probably neurodivergence in yeah. the community. And um, so I'm really interested because for 56 years, I never knew my weird and wonderful <laughs> and sex was because I was neurodivergent um, and I love it, Yep, um, all of it. So I'm gonna hand it over to you. Tell me all about it. What are you up to? Okay, so uh, the reason I got interested was for various reasons. Uh, I actually um, had my virginity taken uh, by a doctor cutting my hymen. I couldn't lose my virginity. I had to have these six, six plastic tubes inserted every couple of weeks um, because I, was just, I had a total fear of losing my virginity. I think I thought it would be like putting a pin in a balloon and I'd go bang on the inside. Oh um, 
And you know, when we're at ND, we internalize certain one-dimensional images and we yes. take them to the nth degree. Mm. Um, so my sexual journey started off uh, with being a very sensory, uh, probably a little bit of a Lolita when I was younger. Um, and I was freaked out because I had the puro going on. So my sexuality didn't belong to me. It belonged to this horrible mental illness. Gosh, yeah. um, then I knew I was bisexual from the age of three. So I was very comfortable with that. I had relationships with men and women. I now only date guys, but I'm still really attracted to girls. Um, and I'm just fascinated. I'm fascinated by the fact that in the neurodiversity community, we have a, a, a huge number of people who are, uh, are sexuality fluid, who are gender fluid, who hate sex, who love sex, who are asexual, um, who don't mind being touched, but they would like advanced warning or permissions or, you know, I'm fascinated. I, I'm, I'm very uh, well versed in domestic abuse, domestic violence from doing professional training, but also um, I'm a survivor of various forms of psychological, financial, etc. abuse. Um, unfortunately, I've, you know, and, and that has to be said in our community, we are particularly prone because we yeah. can't read agendas. Yes. Uh, we tend to see the good in people. And, and I don't think we ever see discussions of domestic violence and domestic abuse where it relates specifically to ND people. And so I wanted to train in that so I could run groups for ND people. Um, so from a mental health point of view, I'm very worried that on dating apps, there's a lot of BDSM uh, or, or rather domestic abuse masquerading as BDSM. I'm very, very uh, worried about that. that. So when you have, you know, um, um, sadism, masochism and, and oh, that okay. type of, you know, fetishes and, and, and power I games. I used to and, know it is S&M in the old days. It's advanced now, like AG, LGBTQ plus. M. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess okay. so. Um, but it's basically, yeah, it's, I guess, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I would describe it as power play, essentially, yes. in various forms. And there's some um, horrible news about that, about some... Polish people in Surrey at the moment with a brothel is actually oh, okay it's actually on the news at the moment and that's you know I mean it's such a great subject to talk about and bring it out I mean I know I loved the series I'm not going to change subject I'm coming back but I just yeah to yeah I'm ADHD and I get all interested we love that right um, that's how you have the best conversations <laughs> yeah well my my loopy binge watch is the bridge Yes, okay, you've told and me I about that, myself, I still haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, I absolutely adore Saga Nora, and apart from fancying her, and, <laughs> and I, I, I never realised that I was um, a, a sort of a magnet for other women, I just didn't read the signs, and I okay, didn't yeah. realise that I was a closet buyer, and I never really did anything about it, well, I did a bit about it, but not a lot, but I was definitely <laughs> um, Saga Noran, um, during a big period of my life. Yeah, and it, it's not emotionally attached whatsoever, and and but it and so it was quite a few partners and you know I knew exactly what I was doing and it was all great and I didn't have any emotional problem yep. about it and so everybody is different like that but what one of the things that comes up with it and I wonder if that's whether you talk about this as well it's a wonderful subject morals well yep oh, we and, have them <laughs> yes absolutely and the thing is because I'm autistic I've got quite a high moral fiber and and, yep. and things like that to a certain extent but my ADHD side of it is shut up <laughs> that's super interesting i get you completely yeah, yeah no i love doing that and i'm gonna do it because that's my impulse my dopamine and i'm gonna go and do it i'm not hurting anybody i'm yeah. not being mean and nasty but i need my stimulation and that's what i want so morals yeah. have to get so sorry sadly autistic moral girl out the window adhd <laughs> come on love let's go for it what do you think about that? <laughs> 
Oh my goodness, I think so much about this. How long have you got? Um, <laughs> so yes, okay, I struggle with this too. So I'm, I guess I'm, I, I've got friends that call me things like Mrs. Waitrose and Jane Austen because I come across as prim and popper. I'm not, but I have that side. Um, so I think that that's another, you know how we're bags of contradictions, Andy, women, oh, I think. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, love we it. Have, we have the sense of justice, we have the morals, but we also have the impulse, we have the, the sensory seeking, we have the need for intensity so I, I struggle because you know I'm in London here in London the dating scene is I would say different to what I knew of uh, outside of London and other places here it's very much about dating openly until you meet someone you want to be exclusive with I find that difficult because I'm naturally someone who's loyal uh, I see yeah. the good in people I can't have deep meaningfuls with 10 people at once Yes. I can't have, you know, sexual relations with 10 people at once. I'm yeah. okay at the whole, like, you know, you might go off and have a, you know, play date or a, or a quick one or whatever, yes, but I can't yeah. maintain that. I can't have multiple no. lovers and, you know, yeah, I can't, yeah. yeah. Um, it's I like multitasking my... when you're, it when is. Um, you know, there, there's some ways we can multitask really well and we, and our brain can go all over the place and ideas and yes, I'm problem solving, I'm solution, I'm doing this and everything else. Yeah. But then there's another part of us, isn't there, where no, 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 that can't work. It has to be one at a time. Yeah, and it's making me feel a bit old school um, because if you're dating one at a time, but the person that you are interested in is is dating openly because that's what you do and that's what they need. It's like, what do you do? Do you keep dating openly so things are equal? Or it's very difficult. But I think I am quite old school, but I definitely have a let's say very modern side. We'll we'll just leave it there. Um, the <laughs> other day, I met my business heroine Emma Sale, who uh, owns Killing Kittens, which is one of my favourite businesses, uh, and that's connected to the system. Well, I'm a big fan of Emma. I need to find out more about her. Please, please, Emma's please put wonderful. all these links in. in I will. Yeah, uh, just send me the links um, separately. Everything you've spoken about and that book about uh, you told me about earlier and, and about, you know, your platforms, because we all want to know much, much more about this. Carry on. Absolutely. So Emma Sale at Killing Kittens, Heather Morrison at Bumpen, which is a disability-led uh, sex toy company uh, in Australia. You know, these are the people, people in sex tech, people in uh, it, it, who are advancing, you know, what sex is and who is allowed to have it. Because I, I mentor young people who are on the autism spectrum. The expectation is, well, they won't have sex because they're autistic. I've, you know, that, that unfortunately people are considered you know when we have what I relate to personally as a disability we're not seen as sexy so people like Heather are wonderful to me because they show you that everyone is allowed sexuality and I think the, the main thing for me is opening up the right to be sexual the right to have a relationship yes we have communication and social uh, condition but we are allowed to connect in however the hell we want and let's show neurotypicals too you know I'm not saying every neurotypical follows some sort of nine to five and a standard convention but we tend to be the out of the box thinkers is what i'm saying and I, yeah. yeah personally and I, i've I, never I, wanted the nine to five knock off on a friday go to the pub saturday ikea yeah. sunday you get over a hangover back to the office on monday like, i don't really do <laughs> vanilla if i'm honest <laughs> and i love that and there, there are just a few things popped up about there just to to join in because i love i love all of that is that um is that she's into tech and uh mm. you know just you know a little giggle if you don't mind is is you know the thing about sex toys so if she can help me help me with my morris minor um hillman imps and help me get into <laughs> some more sort of ferrari and mclaren i'll be really help i'll be really happy 
and then and the then Rolls then Royce of things. sex toys. Yep. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, and then there's a the thing about um, you know I wonder if sort of more autistic people are more can be more polyamorous and that sort of thing. Yes, or we can they're, be. They're sort of you know they have their ways and there's the fluid fluidity and all that sort of different thing. Yeah. And the ADHD is is the sex and the and the stimulation. And then when you get both of them together and bringing other things as well, things like PDA, the demand yep. of sex and all that sort of stuff as well. Yep. There's so much, there is so much there, isn't there? It's and, so interesting, uh, yeah. And also the traditional gender roles and the fact that we often reject them because we don't often like to be pigeonholed as, you know, you're this type of woman or you're that type of man. There's lots of people in our community yes. who are non-binary. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it is fascinating. It is literally the, the, the proverbial hall of mirrors, isn't it? It, it is fascinating and uh, and I'm always very honest with my clients and with everybody I come along at because I never want to be pitchforks at dawn and I'm quite a newbie. I only found out, you know, last March and I get it wrong and, and it was tough last year because I, I did get quite a lot of people in the LGBTQ area who were more on the activist side telling me off a lot and I don't like being told off too much. No, and I can I'm imagine that. Trying, <laughs> I'm trying to learn, you know, I am. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, but I I don't like to be conforming to terminologies and things like that. It's for me, it's all about the way you feel, and and let's all have conversations together, and 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 it is it is quite important to do that. But you know, you 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 were telling me about your work schedule um, the other day, and uh, and I did a, a sort of Tom and Jerry uh, jaw dropping on the floor and my eyes popping out <laughs> moment, kadung 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 heart. Because I just cannot believe how hard how hard you work. And please, Sarah, look after yourself and make sure you don't burn out. I but, do, um, I do. I sleep every day between two and four. So my day is long, but I have a big cutoff point and reset. Yeah. And that's amazing you do that. I can't do that because as soon as I... That's why I can't do mindfulness and meditation. Because as soon as I lay down... Um, it's, uh, what are we having for dinner? You know, Boris Johnson's such an idiot. Uh, you know, and, uh, why did that person say that to me? And there's a fly on the wall and, uh, where's the cat? And she's dead outside. And well, it's very ADHD. I think I'm autistic when I'm going to sleep. I literally, my brain is full on. And then it's, I mean, I, when I met my, um, counseling tutor in Paris, the first thing he said to me was, I bet you sleep easy at night. And I was like, how do you know that? And he said, with a brain like yours, you must just go when you hit the pillow. I was like, hi, I'm Sarah. (laughs) Yeah, but look, you know, I'm similar in a different way. I've just realized similar in a different way. There we are. (laughs) There you go. Uh, That's ND. (laughs) Yeah. I've got my Fitbit and I've had it for four years. And I I write it all in columns in my bullet journal. And it's very, very, very autistic in there. Okay. Um, But the one thing is, is I can't nap. And I wish I could. Uh, I really can't nap. But I do sleep well. Uh, and so I'm a sleep advocate for mental health is really, really important. But yep. actually, I might not be, but it just so happens I am. So I know my deep sleep, my REM, how much I dream and my quality of deep uh, and all of it. And it is pretty good, actually. I've got, uh, even the four hours I had last night, which was unusual, was good quality. They were still good four hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so good. So, it, so in that respect, you just do it in a different way. You do it during the day. You can have your two hours, and that resets you. So, and that's absolutely amazing. So, um, I'd love. Thank you so, so, so much for all of that. And uh, just. Have you got two minutes to tell me anything you're involved with before I ask you the big question? Because I'm pretty sure you're going to have um, a good sort of five to ten minutes to tell me about that. Anything okay. else you want me to tell uh, tell our listeners about the work you're doing? 
I'd really like to talk quickly about my app because it's very unique yes. and I do think that it's very needed. I fully believe in it. It's a, it's a support and community app. So if you look at neurodiversity apps thus far, they broadly uh, are productivity-based, self-help-based, independence-based and therapy-based. But I feel like the main thing is that we can't meet people like us, whether that's platonically or whether that's to date, but also we can't get 24 hour discreet, meaningful support. I don't mean bot driven. Uh, I don't mean outsourced therapists who are mental health based, not neurodiversity. I mean, distilling what exactly do we get from quality support and scaling that up and providing it for a reasonable price so everyone can access it. Because here in London, it's 120 pounds an hour to have therapy, which wow. is more than likely not going to be neurodiversity based. I and that's unbelievable. What am I, I doing? Know. I'm off to London. I well, I know I'm I get not because I couldn't here. justify paying that much money to no. help people. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, is it really. Yeah. And then the opposite side of that is, and I'm sorry, NHS, but it is you need to work on this. I'm afraid. Love mm. you very much, but all this little talky talky trying to sort the mental health on the little emails and the bits and pieces. The problem we have, I mean, the problem we have, I think, and this is where the app is so important to me. The problem we have here in the UK is the people with neurodiversity are clogging up the mental health system. Yeah. Then they're getting through to some help, but it isn't seeing 20% of their actual issues. Yeah. Yeah. Then you've got people who are not neurodivergent, who are not getting help because we're clogging up the wait lists. We yeah. need to separate neurodiversity and mental health. Yes. Um, and we need to approach uh, mental health from, from two different areas. Yes, people have 80% of us have mental health problems, but you need to look at them through the neurodiversity lens um in order and to I get, get anywhere that because yeah i totally get that because i spent my whole life thinking i was mentally ill and i blimmin well wasn't mm. i was neurodivergent and i used to get peed off and really sad and frustrated and yeah. i couldn't regulate my emotions because i had a different way of thinking and i and yeah um, you know doctors giving me prozac and i was a, a total load of rubbish so tell us a little bit about the app what does it do what does it look like tell me about the buttons and and whistles yeah so i have a system with my clients where they can download to me 24 7 on whatsapp um it's very unusual because most therapy you don't contact your therapist between sessions and if you do you sort of get short shrift or they don't answer your email because they've got not got time i have a 24-hour constant download system which can be voice notes it can be messaging it helps me see in real time how people are um, we're going to have that function we're going to scale that up i want people to know well the thing is is whatsapp is encrypted um so it's not going to be whatsapp but the functionality is very similar um, yeah. we're going to have in-house neurodiversity mentors who are there 24 7 for people so even if you're in a restaurant and you sneak off to the loo and go i just can't cope with this you can get an instant me meaningful message back saying don't worry book a session tomorrow we're here for you it's like the i call to it get some validation and just to say yeah you know, i'm here you know i'm here in the background can't do it now but my goodness, we're going to have a good old chat later or tomorrow. Oh, well, that's I call so it, supportive. to be honest, I call it the Samaritans done ND style and run by GIFGAF because it's a subscription-based yes. service. We're talking a, a Netflix subscription cost every month. Yeah. Um, and then a premium if you need a face-to-face -face video that's going to be like a fifth of the cost of private therapy. I'm not saying it's therapy, but if you distill therapy, yes, it gives you psychoeducation. It gives you validation. Yeah. It gets you seen. 
Um, you it means you don't feel mad. You can just say, I hear what you're saying about that. You haven't told me about that about before. Look, I'm going to chuck you a few bits and pieces on uh, WhatsApp. Have a look at that from now, you know, mm. for now. And, and I, like, I love what you're saying because um, one of the difficulties with neurodivergent people is that they're only seeing you once a week and so much is happening in the in-between time. By the time they've seen you, that bit's all gone and they might turn up and they there actually isn't anything there in the space oh, goodness. at the moment. I know. And also, it's very hard to remember how you felt on Sunday night when you had a meltdown uh, as you walked yes. to your session on the following Thursday. Um, sometimes It's good for me to see if somebody wants to video their meltdown, I want to see what they look like. If they, if they want to send me something that's meaningful to them, if, you know, and people, I think people with ADHD particularly, I see this in my VA service, when someone has an idea, they want to tell you now, they don't want to wait 10 days. Absolutely. So if, if they need to message me at 3am, they can, and I'm not going to be like, who do you think you are? Because we're ND. But there's no way that, I'm sorry, in my humble opinion, mm. that um, a neurotypical therapist is going to want to see a video of someone having a meltdown. No. I want to see somebody having a meltdown. I yeah. want to see what they do. I want to, I want to see that stuff. You know, I totally, I'm with you 100%. Well, I've also had people say, I mean, in the past, because I did this for, I've used this system for many years and the app is a, an extension of that. But there's also communication cards. There's a very discreet, ID card because I can't see an executive sitting in a business lounge in an airport with a sunflower lanyard but that doesn't make him less autistic and he might need to discreetly swipe um, I mean I've taken journeys yeah. you know and just made myself some swipe cards on my on my smartphone just to say I'm autistic if the plans change on the journey please let me know the whole queue behind me doesn't need to know and I don't want to look like I'm nine wearing a sunflower yeah. lanyard so there's lots of different functions, but it's essentially wraparound support and, and nothing like it exists. We have app makers over in Ireland. They, they build for Apple. They build for Stanford. They're a fantastic company. They said they've never seen anything like it. They're very so excited about it. So built and happening and, and it's being downloaded and people are paying for it now? It's being a built in April. It's going to take two weeks. We start beta testing on the 1st of oh, May. Exciting. I know. Can you tell us what it's called? Uh, well, I mean, Wired Differently is the portfolio name of nine projects, but I'm not sure yet if we're going to give the app a separate name. And we are de definitely going to have to register as a separate business. Um, Don't call it Uplift, because there's two, there's two, like no doubt, there's two apps called that. Oh, say. are there? I just thought no, of no, Wonder no. Bras then, sorry. Maybe it's because we're the sex topic. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> worth researching the name, but I do love yeah. Wired Differently. And Oh, it just sounds so fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm behind you 100% and we'll be following you um, very, very much. And um, so thank you so much for telling us about that. And any information about it, well, people will see you on LinkedIn, but if you've got blogs You can't or miss me on websites, LinkedIn. It's my playground. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love it. It works for me very, very well. I love LinkedIn. Yeah, so do I. Um, but I want to ask you the, the last question, if that's okay. Because yeah, sure. This is, I know this is what you're doing. And I ask everybody because it's so important. And um, if, you know, just in sort of, you know, about sort of three to five minutes would be absolutely fantastic is mm -hmm. how would you like to see positive change at home, at school and in the workplace to help all neurodivergent people be included and respected as valuable members of society? You know, what this comes down to for me, every time I think this through, it comes back to 
believe people when they say that they're not okay or they struggle with something. It doesn't matter how great they look. It doesn't matter what they're wearing, that they've got makeup on, that they're, you know, speaking and laughing and joking. It's the whole Robin Williams thing, isn't it? You, you, if you can't see it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Okay? I know we live in a society where we're not massively religious. We're not massively spiritual. We have a thing about not believing in stuff we can't see. I get that. It's very cultural. Um, but most conditions, most disabilities are actually hidden. If you think about it, you can't tell what is wrong when someone has their arm in a sling or they're in a wheelchair or they're limping and neurodiversity, you know, what is the worst that can happen? Someone's going to say, actually, I wasn't okay at that party last night where you saw me drinking and laughing and joking. And what we're, 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 we're going to just, what they're going to con us. They're going to tell us they weren't okay when they secretly were. What, what are we afraid yes. of? Yeah. Is our ego so brittle that we don't want to, believe people because they might be lying when they say they're not okay so it comes down to um believing in people believing seeing the best in people i honestly think you know how people at the moment they're kind of on a kindness drive especially post-pandemic these things cost nothing believing someone when they say it doesn't matter what i look like when i did such and such i felt this way that is what matters our feelings yeah. and not what we look like i honestly think it's that simple that could change workplaces because the problem is in the workplace i'm an ex-recruiter uh in the workplace what do you get i don't want to treat anyone differently i'm going to get it in the neck from the other staff you know yeah uh I, I i i don't want you know um somebody crying off yes people get very suspicious about quick 24-hour absences mm. that can be a sign that somebody needs a top-up because they're not coping they're masking they're having to you know desensitize just believe people and ask people how do things affect you but if the worst thing that can happen to you is that someone says they're not okay and they were lying well firstly they must have some issues anyway and secondly really is that the worst thing that can happen i don't understand what the problem is with not believing people with hidden disabilities i think that that's very old now we've got to move on but right across the right across society, neurotypical or neurodivergent, there was something that was happening. It might have just been on a little um, BBC or one of you know a radio um, message or something like that. It was mm -hmm. um, it was saying, you know, you ask the question, "Oh, hi, how are you?" And somebody says, "I'm all right." Yep. They dismiss it. They say, "I'm okay," but then you say, "Are you really okay?" <laughs> and they because never are. <laughs> Yeah, but are you really okay? And the only reason I ask that is just because I haven't seen you posting on social media and, you know, I've texted a couple of times and yeah, mind me saying, but you were a little bit sort of irritated with me the other day and I haven't seen you like that before. And you that's know, nice. That shows you care, I think. Yeah, it's just, it is about being authentic because with our imposter syndrome, we've always, we've had this such a big problem about being fake and and mm. perfectionism and, and authentic and everything else but if people don't talk and ask honest questions and people don't answer that you know you've got to answer it as well you know how are we going to mm. help people yeah I, I mean your your app and what you are advocating to do what you are shouting from the rooftops i see you all over the place responding to different people's posts you know and, and this is action to me this is this is not saying you're going to do something and not doing it because the worst thing i i hate with my rejection sensitivity dysphoria mm -hmm. is when one of my friends somebody i know will say we must get together sometime oh yeah no that means nothing right let's do lunch <laughs> please don't say that I need, to get a diary. I need the time don't be late for goodness sake never be late never never be late <laughs> 
ever, ever, ever. And um, and I'll bring uh, you know, and, and I'll bring some extra cash. <laughs> and it'll be okay. So, Sarah Louise, thank you so much for our wonderful time together today. My goodness, we've packed in so much. Thank I you. I'm having a bit of an imposter syndrome, and my heart's beating faster thinking back about what I've just spoken about to do with sex, but never mind. I'm a human <laughs> being, I'm neurodivergent, and uh, if nothing else, I'm honest, like your good self. You have the power, you can always edit, I guess. <laughs> no, I'm not going to edit it, because the thing is, is this is my true self, I want to help people, I want people to listen to the podcast, because we talk about good things, mm. and what you have done today, Sarah, is talk about really good things, really important things for for a lot of listeners who want to hear the truth this is the truth so thank you i'm lucky to have the chance to there's a lot of people i think that would like to say the truth but they don't get you know this kind of uh, platform so i'm really grateful it's one of the best parts of running the business is that i get to have a bit of a voice and feel a little bit more empowered than i than i ever have and we have to talk and um i've got coming up um some uh, i've got uh, david graham and tigger pritchard coming on and, and more honesty you know we need We've got to talk about it, you know, yeah, and that's a story for another day. Um, but I'm so grateful and I've loved speaking um, with you and I can't wait to see you in the flesh. Um, yeah, same. I've, I've got to say, I'm seeing one of my past guests, a uh, lovely, lovely guest. I'm meeting her at the Lego convention on the 13th of February. I'm so excited about going to um, stock up on Lego. This wow. Week. I know way too many people who would want to go to that. So, yeah. Very excited. <laughs> so, Everyone will be ND. <laughs> Thank you once again and absolutely the best wishes and, and, and everything for all you're doing. And I've got my um, sweatshirt coming up. So, um, sorry, excuse me. I've got my sweatshirt on the list and I can't wait for that. So take care. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you ever so much. Take care. See you soon. Bye, Sarah Louise. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.